Hello, friends. Welcome back to Imago Gay. I'm your host, Kendra Arsenal. Spectrum Magazine, SDA Kinship, along with yours truly, have come together to bring you the final episode of our Matthew Cortman series. We have discussed a wide range of queer theological topics, including was David bisexual? Or was the lesson of Sodom and Gomorrah really don't be gay? Along with various theological frameworks in which God welcomes us to challenge they, them, when our compassion encounters a harsher view over who God is. Before we get started, I just want to say thank you for those of you who are being touched by this podcast and writing in, and I wanted to share a story that one of you have shared with me. I've already gotten permission to do so. So first of all, I just wanted to ask, how are you all doing? Navigating your faith and queer identity can sometimes be in the environment of a conservative Christian worldview is incredibly taxing on one's mental health, on one's spiritual health. Here's a letter that I got not too long ago. It says, last night, our church had a guest speaker Q&A. As usual, there were lots of relationship questions and it ended with this question. Are we supposed to accept homos in the church or deny them? Let's set the scene. There is me feeling very anxious as a closeted queer and that question pops up. I didn't know what to do. I had to sit there and listen to this pastor say how disgusting he thought it was, how they couldn't be a pastor or participate in other church duties. For months I had already been thinking, do I quit my deaconess role before coming out? But not just that, I could be wrong, but this question felt telling of the true intention of, am I supposed to care about LGBTQ people? I felt scared and alone in the room full of my peers. I just wanted to share. Thank you for this and much love. And from what I can tell, the impression that this person, this closeted queer person got from their pastor was that their pastor doesn't actually care about them. I also hear that this person feels incredibly alone and they are afraid, not sure what their queerness means as far as their ability to participate in their church. Will their friends accept them? Will their community accept them? Will their family accept them? Or are they going to have to go through life alone? And for me, I'm frustrated when I get these types of messages because there's no recourse within the church structure to say, hey, look, somebody said something very bigoted and hurtful and illegal in other settings uh, to now address this person who's in spiritual authority and say, you cannot talk to people this way. You cannot discriminate. You cannot make these types of damaging remarks. But there is no recourse. I don't know. I I don't know the best recourse for these types of actions. I know that sometimes a camera, a witness that we can bring to the outside world, uh, can be our greatest weapon. And also a comfort to know that this strange world that we're living in, where everyone is still seated and polite and going about their merry way after this horrible act has just happened, uh, that there's some outside voice that can say, this is awful. And this is. We have to do better. We have to do better. Now, with all that said, let's get into it. 
Well, I mean, okay, so let's look at Leviticus 18.22, having gone through that. I am so sick and tired of people saying that 18.22 or 20 verse 13 have to do with homosexuality because homosexuality has a definition. It is a sexual orientation that has to involve both sexes. Uh, you have to have, it has to apply across the board. You can't just have it be one. And it has to involve much more than sex. It has to involve a whole orientation, a whole sensibility. It's, it's not just, you could be homosexual and never actually have sex. You could be a virgin. You can be homosexual and deny it. You can be lots of things, right? So when someone says, Leviticus talks about homosexuality and calls it an abomination, it's just, it's not correct. You know, you're either lying or you just don't understand the text well enough to understand how wrong you are because you don't even know your own definitions in English. So the problem is Leviticus 18.22, to use that one specifically, only just states that a man shall not bet another man. Okay. Oh, by the way, just to clarify for somebody, the word zakar, if, if you've ever seen this on TikTok, it does not mean boy. It is not talking about pedophilia in Leviticus 18.22. There's some kind of, I could go deeper into it, but there's like this weird misunderstanding of the Hebrew where people are trying to argue that, no, it had nothing to do with LGBTQ. It's about pedophilia. Okay. The, I agree on, on the one in regards to the fact that it's not homosexuality, but no, it's not also about pedophilia. Zakar just means male. And so I'm just putting that down in case somebody listening. It's the anatomical male. So the one who does the piercing versus the one who is pierced, correct? Like it's, yeah. yeah. And so the thing is, is that what we have in this text is really an example of what you could, if you're going to take the Bible literally, which is what conservative individuals always stress, take the Bible literally. Don't add in your own extra interpretations. If you take the Bible literally, then you're looking at this text and saying, well, it's only talking about men. Okay, so that's males. There's no women mentioned here. So that can't already be homosexuality. And it's only talking about piercing. It's only talking about intercourse. That can't be homosexuality because that's just sex, you know, mm -hmm. anal, oral, whatever. It, there's nothing else going on there. There's no, you will not have a relationship. You will not have feelings. You will not <laughs> care for one, right? That, there's none right. of that. So at some point you take a pullback. And when I've said this before to individuals uh, on the internet or, or elsewhere, they'll say, whoa, what are you trying to get at? Why are, you try why are you taking it this way? Why are you trying to be a troublemaker? And they'll try to go ahead and defend it and say, well, but you know, in the Bible, it says men, but it means everyone. It's, you know, it's just, it's just using masculine language for all. But that's not the case in Leviticus. In Leviticus, it is addressed to men predominantly only. And when there's a rule that might apply to women too, that needs to be specified. It gives a second rule following that tells this is what you do with women. And in fact, in this very chapter, you have a bunch of examples of that, of where it says, ah, oh, and here's what happens with the man and here's what happens with women when they're in this situation. There is no such example for 1822. So not only is Leviticus a text that does specify when it has to do with women, it does not do so for this text, nor does it do so in 20 verse 13. Mm -hmm. So you can't say, well, it's applying to men and women. It really is in Leviticus only applying to men. So now you're in a weird position where if you take the Bible literally, you stop adding your own extra stuff to it, you have a prohibition 
at best on men having sexual intercourse with other men. That's it. Okay. Now that's not that's not an open door to the LGBTQ community. And there might be a bunch of men in that community who are like, I don't like this verse. Okay. But that is a far cry from homosexuality. That is not, hey, uh, your relationships, your orientations. And somebody could go, but how can you even have those orientations or relationships without ending up having sex? Well, apparently Paul thought so, because in 1 Corinthians 7, he goes ahead and says, well, I wish that it would be the case that all you married people would act as if you're single. Be married, but not have sex with each other. So, I mean, apparently (laughs) Paul could imagine sexless marriages. So, you know, to be truthful on Leviticus, you could have Christians going out saying, we support gay marriage as long as it's sexless, right? That would be a literal (laughs) reading of the Bible. It sounds ridiculous, but you certainly could find just as good an argument for it from the Bible. But then this becomes a problem because why is it that we don't usually take things in Leviticus as being moral laws and instead ceremonial or cultural? And the usual way we do that is because it doesn't have a moral ring to it. It's not universal. It's not fair. So now we have a real problem. If we take Leviticus literally, it sure as heck doesn't sound very moral. You're a man, don't have sex with men. Everything else we don't have an opinion on. And women, they're they're not an issue right now. We're not going to talk about them. Well, wait a minute. So you're saying that, and somebody's going to go, well, but what about Paul? Okay, but let's, before we even get to Paul, think about the absurdity of this. If you're really conservative, you think Moses wrote this, you're talking about over a thousand years plus where Israel had no rule on the book about women. So this was such a moral issue that only men were known by God to be wrong up until right at the end of Judaism's uh, temple when Paul goes ahead and suddenly says, I also just kind of don't approve of it. Not even like a rule from God coming. It just, I don't quite like it. That just sounds so not ethically principled. That sounds very odd. And by the way, we actually know that they didn't include women in this because when Josephus is commenting on this text in Leviticus, he understands it only to apply to men. And he actually uh, has to go into an explanation on why um, God in his wisdom knew how sexy men were and how uh, men couldn't help themselves but to want to throw themselves at other men. And so God gave this rule to control these lustful passions. Wow, Josephus, do you want to tell us something more about how you feel? <laughs> Culture affects things. This is yeah. this is Rome. And they're influenced by the Greeks' uh, obsession with the male body as perfection. And so there's naked men all around. This is, again, think about how uh, a queer understanding of sexuality details how much our culture and our expectations affects what is masculine sexuality or what we understand it as. But the thing is, you look at the Leviticus passages and you don't have something here that looks very principled. If you take it literal, it is problematic. And then here's how you can problematize it even more. Hmm. Why aren't women mentioned? Odd. You know, if if the issue had to do potentially, some people have guessed, oh, it had to do with spilling seed and only men have that, yada, yada, yada. But here's another idea. In that passage, it also forbids that a man marry um, a mother and her daughter. That it's an abomination if he does so. Now, that is kind of odd if you think about it you know i mean why why would it be wrong to have those two married in a polygamous marriage 
And the only answer I can come up with, and this again is me being a biblical scholar here at this point uh, with my own suggestions. In my view, the only way it makes sense is that Leviticus assumes that it's possible or allowed for the individual in question to have his polygamous marriage share one bed. Hmm. And that if there is a, uh, if both of his wives are related, then when they enter the bed, they're committing incest, the two women. Right. And so in that threesome situation, that would be a violation of the incest protocols that Leviticus spelled out. And so for that reason, that specific coupling is wrong. Now, just why would, just think about this. Why would it matter a mother and a daughter as opposed to a simple rule, uh, you may not have two women together? Right, just say, don't have two women together across the board. Don't worry about it. There'll never be a threesome in Israel. Uh (laughs) But he didn't. He says there can't be two sisters together and there can't be uh, a mother and a daughter together. And then when you look at Jacob's story in Genesis, Jacob goes into each wife who are sisters individually in their beds as if the author knows that it would be incest to bring them together. So you have to have Jacob look all nice and make sure he goes into each sister individually so that even though he's breaking the law, he's still trying to make sure he he keeps it in principle. He's not bringing them into a sin together. So again, if that's the case, then man, does this start to sound really cultural because now right. we're looking at the rationale for why women aren't allowed uh, aren't being talked about is that there doesn't want to be a potential violation of the freedom of men to have their polygamous marriage as they choose except in these cases where incest would occur and that just does not start to sound very morally principled at that point when you go to Paul in the new testament and you have Paul and Romans talk about um arsenikoitai well that just means man bedding he, take, he makes the word up by just looking at Leviticus in the Greek and taking two words and combining them together, man betting. Again, Paul is talking about men because he understands that's what Leviticus is talking about, just like, he, just like Josephus understood that. But when you look at what he says about women, and somebody will come up and go, oh, hey, 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 he says about women. He says, okay, but let's look carefully. One, he's talking about a group, a they that he's describing, and they're the idolaters. Mm-hmm. Are they men? Are they women and men? Well, no, they're only men. And the reason we know that, because he says, and they're women also, right? So that tells us that he's talking about a group of male men and their women are a side note. What happens after he says their women do unnatural things, okay? And he obviously disapproves. I'm not saying he doesn't you know, disapprove. He disapproves of this, he doesn't like it. But he says their women do these things. And then what ends up happening is he comes around and goes back to they, the male men, and he starts listing off all their abominations. But those abominations are the male people, the ones he started talking about. The women got their little note. Then he goes back to the men. Why? Because the same reason Josephus understands that Leviticus is talking about only men. Paul knows he can't describe Leviticus's abomination to the women. He knows that he needs to introduce the women first before he goes into the description of the men who are having intercourse. Because if he had done women after the men, it would look like he was describing the women as part of the Levitical prohibition. By stating women first, he's giving his opinion on it. 
by going then to Arsene Koitai, talking about these men who are going ahead and betting each other, now he can start laying down all of these terrible descriptions of what they do because he has scriptural authority in his mind to do so. But here's where that leaves us with. We don't have in the Bible a description of homosexuality anywhere, describing both sexes equally, describing the whole spectrum of orientation. None of that. What are we left with? We're left with, for the most part, uh, a prohibition on men having actual sex with one another, intercourse, and that's it. That's the only prohibition. And then we have a disapproval, but less in degree, that Paul gives as an opinion that is not mainstream in Judaism in the sense of that it would be an absolute prohibition, but just something that Paul himself does not think is normal. That is not the strongest case. There is more evidence in the Bible to help support the continued existence of slavery in terms of biblical texts you could cite than there are texts that can support uh, the traditional view of forbidding same-sex relationships. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm coming here for those GC officials who are listening or anyone else. It does not mean that what I just said goes ahead and says, well, you're wrong and let everything fly. That's not my point here. My point is we're not actually having a discussion of what the Bible says. We're not actually being true to our biblical values and looking at the Bible seriously. What we're really doing is just using the Bible in a very shallow way, the same kind of way that we disapprove of other liberal Christian groups doing it. And we're just doing it because that's what we've always done. When what we really need to do is prayerfully go back to the Bible and notice what does it actually say? And when we do, we might come away with a really weird issue, which is if we're being biblically faithful, we'd have to come out and say that, well, we forbid uh, males having sex with one another, but everything else I, 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 we, we have to come up with outside the Bible. And in regards to women, well, Paul disapproved, so maybe we'll side with his opinion. That is not a very strong moral value statement. And that's why they don't want to go down this road, because then it makes it look debatable rather than an absolute prohibition that God's word gives. It just isn't that way. And we need to get to a place where we can have that conversation. This is so interesting. You bring up something, you know, I think that we don't often talk about in scholarship, and that is Paul and the way that he is cultural in some ways and influenced by and and might have might have his own uh, internal misogyny and internalized homophobia, right? We don't often think of him as, you know, we think of him as inspired and he is, but everything that he says is like outside of the filter of his humanity. And we don't consider that he might have had the forces of culture acting upon him in a way where he was homophobic or that he was a bit misogynistic in some of his writings. And, and we try to, you know, we talk about Paul saying, wives submit to your husbands. And we think, well, Paul's speaking culturally. He's speaking to a time when women couldn't work. And uh, this there was this hierarchy within society and slaves obey your master. And like, Paul was not the person who was overturning systems of injustice, right? He wasn't overturning slavery and advocating for the equality of all men. He was very much working inside of a system and within inside of a culture. But we also don't think about, and as you're talking about, these these other factors of the person that might be playing into his writing and you talk about you know even his own internalized homophobia where he says i don't really like this um and and maybe you can clarify a little bit because you're saying the fact that he wrote 
his statement about women exchanging the natural and lust for other women, that he puts that in the beginning. And when a, and when somebody writes in that fashion, they're basically presenting their own opinion and then they're going and the second part of that is going to be them based off of scripture and kind of doing an exposition on scripture. Is that correct? So well, I'm not saying that as a general rule. It's, it's okay. uniquely because of the fact that Paul is using Leviticus, which only talks about men, uh, and he's citing it in relationship to this group of men. But if he wanted to tie the prohibition, and because remember, he knows his audience understands Leviticus as forbidding men with men. So he knows they understand that point. So if he was to go ahead and give a description of how terrible these people are and then go, and their women also, right? Then it would sound as if he was describing the prohibition as applying to the women. I think this is just more of a subconscious thing of Paul. He knew that he wasn't drawing on the Leviticus prohibition first. So he talks about the women and then he goes to the men with all the description of how terrible they are, precisely because his mind shifts from my opinion about seeing women with women. My gosh, this is crazy. Look how crazy it's gotten. Even women are doing it. But then now, okay, look at the Leviticus prohibition. God himself said this. Now let me lay down the rules of, you know, even they're supposed to die for doing this. So I think that it's reflective of the thought process for Paul culturally in terms of how he understood Leviticus and his groups, his audiences understood that. And I think that just gives you an insight into his worldview, but at the same time, like it doesn't even have to always be uh, a negative thing. I mean, think about why isn't Paul trying to overturn all these injustices? He was convinced that Jesus was going to come back any year. Right. right. So the idea to him to try to even revise some of this stuff wouldn't even come to his mind because he's expecting an imminent return of Jesus. That's why he tells in first Corinthians seven, don't even have sex anymore. Don't give birth to children. You know, let's just, just wait don't it get out. Married. Exactly. You know, because he thinks Jesus is coming so soon, uh, you know, and thankfully the church didn't listen to his advice or, or the church would have shrunk very quickly. All right. We are halfway through our episode. We're going to take a small break, and if you'd like, you can take a deep breath. Okay, let's get back into it. I think you're making a really good point, and I also wanted to make this this statement as well, because like you're saying, the way that but even the word homosexuality in our language didn't even arrive upon the scene until like the uh, till the 19th century, and that happened in Prussia and some Prussian penal code uh, that was written, and then it came into our own vocabulary and wasn't put into the Bible until was it 1946? Right, it's a fairly new concept in the way that we talk about LGBTQ love, and so to think that there is something comparable that that Paul was specifically addressing in his day may not have been the case. I mean, it was so common in that time, especially like the Greeks or the Romans, when they would conquer another city, and there's like this ancient pottery, I was reading this article the other day, this ancient pottery that shows kind of the victor in kind of like he's naked and his like penis is out. And then you have the conquered literally bent over in a submissive position. And it could have been this reference to the ways, like you were talking about earlier, the ways that sex is used to dominate. 
Yes, but here's where I would want to stress and what I tried to do in the homophobia chapter is there are lots of ways we could hypothesize what it could have been, just Mm -hmm. like with slavery verses. Well, maybe this is what God was really trying to get at. The problem is, just like in the antebellum South, those require that you have a certain mindset in order to accept. And in some sense, what I really want to challenge thinkers to recognize is that even if you were to believe that there are certain uh, homosexual acts that are forbidden, and you were to look at the Bible as literally as possible, you would not get a principled universal stance from it. You would get a very highly specified individual uh, and very oddly not widely discussed issue in the Bible. And I think it's at that point where you can say, okay, hold on argue what you're going to argue, but if you're going to claim it's from the Bible, you had better revise your position to match it or else Mm. start owning up that you're treating these verses in a way that you don't allow other Christians to treat other verses like the Sabbath, et cetera. You need to recognize what you're doing because what we have now are people who claim in our church and other churches that they're reading the Bible literally when they're actually absolutely not. And so you can't have an honest discussion, even them consciously with themselves about what the Bible says and how to handle it if you can't admit what's actually there. Otherwise, you're just allowing culture to shift your views whichever way you want. And that means you could get anything anywhere that you want. And I don't think the church wants that position either. So everyone can, of course, come to their own positions. There are scholars who argue that Paul is trying to talk about uh, sex with children because that was happening all the time with small boys. And there's scholars who talk about this in relationship to the, the Feast of Dionysus. But all of that is conjecture. And my only point is you don't have to go into the conjecture. You can. It's your right. Anyone can. But you don't have to go into the conjecture in order to recognize that there is an unprincipled stance that most commentators are taking towards these texts and how they approach them. And that's not healthy for us uh, finding where Christ wants to lead us. So, for example, take Jesus' statement in Matthew 19, uh, where he goes ahead and says, that there are eunuchs who have uh, been made eunuchs for the kingdom of God, who have made themselves eunuchs, and who have been born eunuchs for the kingdom of God. And Jesus prefaces this teaching by saying, not everyone can accept this, and then follows the teaching with, again, not everyone can accept this, only those to whom it's been given. Well, Jesus was kind of prophetic, surprise, surprise, because Matthew's gospel is the only one that preserved it Hmm. with those warnings. So apparently... All the other traditions in Christianity, because it's not in the Apocryphal Gospels, and it's not in any of the canonical other than Matthew. So apparently, it was so controversial that if Matthew had not included it in his gospel, we'd never know Jesus ever said it. Mm -hmm. And what does it mean for Jesus to say that there are eunuchs who are born eunuchs for the kingdom of God? Well, eunuch by the period of the New Testament no longer just means someone whose genitals are cut off or, or, or been snipped and they don't have uh, the ability to impregnate someone. No, by this point, eunuch is being utilized in a way to refer to anyone with an aberrant, different than normal sexuality. You even have references in the church fathers to eunuchs who are sexually devious. So you know that they understand that these are sexually active uh, individuals, some of them. So what does it mean that they were born sexually different. Well, what it means is that God is admitting and understanding, I mean, through Jesus, that there are people who are born in a non-heterosexually normative way. And these individuals not only were born that way, uh, but they are 
uh, for the purpose of God's kingdom. And I've always thought about Paul's reference to the body of Christ and how those parts of our body sexually that we try to hide are the most privileged and to be given the highest value because of how we treat them. Um, I've always thought, you know, we probably should be trying to think about the LGBTQ community in that light, in the sense of sexual diversity is supposed to be celebrated and given a very honored role in the church, just as Jesus talks about. It's not just people are born in a uh, different way, a eunuch. It's that they are born for the sake of the kingdom of God. They serve a role in the church. And so a big issue here, again, is not only can we have a real discussion on what the Bible says, but can we have a real discussion about the important role that such individuals need to serve in the church and how that best makes sense? Again, because we can't have the biblical discussion on what it says in terms of prohibitions and evaluating it, we're not having a discussion also about the role uh, healthy-wise in the church of people who have these gifts, who have this perspective, benefiting the church as a whole, as a body. Again, it's it's sad. It's sad when I say these things because it's not, not only does the Bible get a bad rep at times because of how people are interpreting it, but also it's hard to, it's hard to remember sometimes when you see people abusing these texts and as a scholar to sit there and go, you know, I know you don't mean it necessarily because you don't really understand your own biases or the fact of how you're reading the Bible, but the damage that's done is, is just terrible. The Bible offers so much possibility for how to address these issues. And again, I'm not telling people at the GC or other pastors or other individuals to say, this is the way you need to do it. What I am saying is, you have not been reading it carefully enough. Right. And so you need to be paying attention and thinking to yourselves, what is a proper theology of sexuality and Adventism? And a proper theology of sexuality should not be beginning with uh, cohabitation or right. do, are, you, are, you, uh, are you having sex before marriage? Those are not the key issues in Adventist theology of sexuality should be. You can have them, but that should not be the key issue. The key issue is how does the Bible understand the full diversity of sexuality? And it has a lot more to say on it than we've allowed the conversation to have. And even at times, people try to silence it so that it never comes out. And it's just sad. You made a really good point, and I kind of want to, and if you have anything extra to add on to this, because when you talked about the eunuchs in your chapter, I was actually really surprised because, you know, you were talking about how historically, you know, we see eunuchs in these castles. I mean, we often think of someone like a Daniel uh, and, and King, ba you know, Nebuchadnezzar's time. Like, we, we see these um, figures, and we often think of them as just people who were castrated by men, but also historically they were referred to as people who maybe had more, uh, they had a distaste for women, right? And so they were not a threat to getting the king's wives pregnant. And so they were put in these positions of power. And when you see- um, They could be asexual. And, right, and that's how a lot of people have interpreted Jesus' statement as regarding people who are asexual, applying it to Paul. But it's like, it also was anything sexually divergent that was not heterosexual, not just those without sexuality, but even those that had sexuality that wouldn't have been directed at women. Right, exactly. And so you see somebody like um, uh, the the eunuch 
that is coming from um, Ethiopia uh, that is given the gospel, right? Um, and I think that that's also kind of a a picture of inclusion, right? A picture of hope for people who might have a sexually divergent um, sexuality that this is one of the first kind of converts um, to Christianity, really. Yeah, although in that case, I mean, it's possible that that specific eunuch might have actually been castrated uh, just because of two things. One, he's serving a ruler, um, and two, because... Um, one of the prohibitions in Deuteronomy is that you can't, uh, as a eunuch, if your if your testicles are crushed, you can't uh, uh, come into the temple. And mm. so, uh, it might be the case that in this specific eunuch, it's more the traditional sense, just because of the fact that uh, he wouldn't have been allowed in the temple because of his bodily deformity. And um, what uh, the text is supposed to say is, through Jesus, the temple has now come to you. And so mm-hmm. it might be very well that the, if from as a biblical scholar, that the intention of that passage is to view eunuch more in the traditional sense in that particular case. But I don't think that changes the fact that he can be representative of that larger group that Jesus refers to. Right, right. No, this is good. This is all important points to be making. Kind of l- lastly, you talked about like slippery slopes um, and that we're often afraid that conversations that move towards LGBTQ inclusion means that we're like on a slippery slope. And you say, well, that might not necessarily be a bad thing, right? That we have kind of shifted some of our perspectives on, you know, punishment uh, by death, right? Um, As taught in the Bible, we've thought, well, maybe that's not exactly the way to go. And so maybe going down a slippery slope isn't as bad as we thought. Maybe you could talk and close out with a little bit about that. Sure. I mean, like, imagine uh, you go to church and somebody preaches the, um, let's say, 2013, where it goes ahead in, uh, in Leviticus and says that, uh, you know, you, you need to kill or, or, or maybe it's burn with fire, or whatever, uh, the, the two men that have that have slept together. Um, and yeah, somebody goes, absolutely. Let us support the death sentence for uh, for gay people. I don't think many Adventists are going to find that uh, good. They're, they're going to be very, uh, just like most evangelicals, they're going to get squirmy in their seats and be like, uh, this guy sounds crazy. Why is he so obsessed with death? Um, but yet he's quoting the Bible. Yeah, it's just the scriptures. He's just quoting, right. a, a, you know, an interpretation and he's specifying the issue about death, not just that it's a sin, but the way to do it. And if somebody goes, well, but we're not to judge, you know, Jesus said that uh, vengeance is the Lord's. And so I'm not going to, right. But but wait a minute, you're not taking the Bible very literally. You're, it says what you're supposed to do. It was instituted in your mind in Israel during its governance, and now you don't want the United States to have the same policy? Uh, you don't want other people to have that issue elsewhere? You say, oh, well, I'll wait till Judgment Day so God can do it. Uh, well, you know, what it reveals is that there is a slippery slope that's already occurred, that conservative individuals who claim they're reading the Bible literally on these passages have clearly been liberalized to the point that they think that the punishments in regard to those passages uh, are not to be understood in a temporal literal sense to be instituted. And that helps us understand that, again, uh, people are unaware of how much they change. They're unaware of how much their principled stand is already anti the Bible text that they're quoting. So that helps, I think, if they can look at themselves, they can realize, well, I obviously was allowing myself to move that far. What was the reason I allowed that? Oh, because there's something Jesus said that I let overrule this text? Well, wait, 
But if I let Jesus overrule that there, then why would I have a problem with Jesus overruling somewhere else? And this becomes kind of the issue where people are unwilling usually to recognize what parts of the Bible they're ignoring and why. And because, because they don't want to look like they're picking and choosing, but it's inevitable you're going to have to, because there are times where the Bible conflicts between the Old Testament and Jesus. And at those times, almost always Christians choose what Jesus said. When they don't, they're Calvinist, and we kind of find them nuts because they're saying they should be able to kill their kids. I once knew a Calvinist who argued that. He was very affirmative that if the government allowed him, he would murder his child, just as Leviticus said, because Leviticus says if they're disobedient, you should do it. There's very few people who say those types of things and would be viewed as sane or not locked up by other conservative Christians, which is the point that um, people are not taking the Bible literally. They are interpreting it. They have their own Christ-centered hermeneutic, even when they're arguing against liberals who they claim have a Christ-centered hermeneutic. Really, they both do. They're just more aware or unaware or more liberal or not in regards to how they're doing it. But because one side doesn't want to admit it, they're not really recognizing um, the process involved in those decisions and why they made them. And so again, you don't want culture to shift the church. Rather, you'd love the church to be able to take principled decisions on scripture and be able to guide culture into a better role. But we don't have that because in order to do that, you'd have to be self-aware of what you're doing in scripture. It's why I wrote the book, Saying No to God, A Radical Approach to Reading the Bible Faithfully, because that whole book is about recognizing the process you're taking in the decisions when you make them about which parts you're listening to or not. What principles did you did you focus on? If you can do that, then you can have a substantive um, ability to engage the Bible on a whole set of issues that we haven't been able to do before. And I think that in Adventism, say, for example, because it's our community, you know, it's we I know it's for some it's painful to have any more conversations because it's like, well, we've gone through so long and what we really want is to have change and to have community and develop. Inevitably, that will be the case in some churches, but in the larger church, the conversation has not sadly happened yet, which means that you're going to have two things happen. Either you're going to have the church have the conversation and come to its own position on something that is more biblically faithful and is a better guide and a better way to bring the community together. And that sometimes happens on occasions when the church self-reflects and prays. On other occasions, what you're going to have is the church forced into the position that it's going to go into because they'll be prosecuted if they don't. And so culture then shifts and shapes the church members. Again, this was the case with slavery where the law banned it and people just had to accept it. And new generations grew up with thinking, well, why would I have had slavery? That doesn't even make sense. It's the case with divorce in the sense people just accepted there's lots of it and it's just an inevitable part of things. It's the case with integration, with marriages between different uh, races because, well, now you can't deny it. And so young people are growing up with a different culture. The church in all those positions was not on the whole guiding the position on that. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, thankfully, the Adventist church was in the issue of slavery, against slavery from the beginning. And and that was that's a wonderful thing to know about the Adventist church. But nonetheless, for most Christians, they only came to those positions, not through a self-study of scripture, but because they were forced to have no other choice but to find that explanation. So I think that in the whole, when Adventists are thinking about how are we approaching these issues, there is 
necessarily a conversation that needs to happen. And that conversation needs to be frank about what the Bible actually says versus what we interpret it to say. You know, it's like when I was uh, having this conversation with students uh, regarding how we interpret and the hermeneutics of interpretation, they, the key issue was, I'm not, I don't want you to think I'm telling you what you need to believe. I need you to understand how everyone's coming to the positions that they come to and to understand that whatever position you're going to come to, you have to own it and you have to recognize your role in it. And what we can't have is a really church faithful conversation that has the participants on one side saying, I don't interpret the Bible. I just say how it is. No, you're going to have to own the fact that you are interpreting it, defend how you interpreted it that way. Because if you don't, then we're just going to keep going in circles. And that's not healthy for the church. It's not healthy for the LGBTQ community. It's not healthy for anybody because we're not letting Christ speak. We're not letting the Holy Spirit lead. And again, what I hate is that when I say these things, someone's going to be listening to this who's conservative and going, oh, he's telling me I have to accept this or I have to believe this. And it's like, listen back to everything that I've said here. I've said nothing that violates anything that the Adventist church currently teaches. And yet a bunch of people would hear it that way, just by virtue of the fact that I'm talking about it. And that already spells a cancer in the church. If we can't have a very heartfelt, legitimate conversation and be able to deal with the Bible as it is, why do we uphold any of our Bible-centric uh, statements about why this church is so great? Because if we can't do it here, what makes us think we're doing it anywhere else? Imago Gay is a podcast where we explore queer questions and a colorful God. In addition to curious conversations, I'm so grateful for all of you who have reached out and have been sharing your personal stories, tragedies, and triumphs within the queer community. If you are enjoying this content, please be sure to rate the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcast and share this episode with a friend. If you want to follow our guest today, YouTube personality and adjunct professor Matthew Cortman, you can follow him on his YouTube channel, Matthew Cortman. You can also follow our sponsors today, Spectrum Magazine and SDA Kinship International. And be sure to sign up for their newsletters where you will get the latest updates on queer news and happenings. This episode was created and engineered by yours truly and sponsored by Spectrum Magazine and SDA Kinship International. Thank you.